Disrupting Japan, Episode 15. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining us. Today we sit down with Takashi Fujimoto of Street Academy, a peer to peer learning platform that matches teachers with those eager to learn. Now, education technology, or edtech, Is going to be one of the most active startup investment areas in Japan in 2015. In the last few months, there's been a real spike in the amount of time VCs seem to be talking about it, and we'll be talking a lot more about edtech in future podcasts as well. Education in general is an area that really needs to be changed. The entire foundation of the world's education systems were built with the goal of training a workforce for. A hierarchical, systematic, repetitive, task based occupations, whether in factories or in offices. Now, over the past century, technology, not rising incomes, but technology, has rendered our educational systems and our educational goals hopelessly obsolete. Even in developing economies, technology and automation has regulated repetitive, task based occupations. To the lowest paying jobs. EdTech is a fascinating and dynamic space that is full of both companies with innovative ideas on how to improve learning and companies whose sole desire is to siphon off public funds. It's an area full of both government officials who want to find better ways to help students learn and also those who want nothing more than to protect their current power. In the end, the goals are complex. Each nation needs to strike a balance that provides its population with not only the skills they need to find a job, but the information they need to be informed, responsible citizens in that society. After all, a society that overly values disruption will soon cease to exist. So, how do we strike that balance? Well, I'll let Takeshi explain it during our interview. Great, we're sitting down with Takashi Fujimoto of Street Academy. And it's unusual, it's the middle of the day, so the wine's going to have to wait for some other day. <laughs> But、uh, for, thanks for sitting down with me today. No, thank you for having me on the show. So, Street Academy is a peer to peer or consumer to consumer teaching platform connecting people who want to teach classes with those who want to learn. And I'm sure you can explain it a whole lot better than I can.、Oh, no. So, why don't you tell everyone a bit about Street Academy? It's a web based online community of people who want to teach their skills in an offline format, i.e., holding a classroom or workshops at a cafe or event space or co working space. And I match those people with people who want to go meet up and learn some new skills. So, it's an online community of matching. But the real education takes place in offline. That's kind of an interesting approach to online learning. And I think that offline component is really it's important. I mean, it goes back to Socratic method, if you will, the, the one on one. Has that been a help or a hindrance in, in growing the company, that need for that one on one interaction? Well, to be quite honest, it's a great hindrance. I had a lot of trouble growing the business in the first six months. I had a lot of trouble attracting talented engineers because I had a hard time convincing them that it really will take off.、Uh, because people assume that, oh, trying to match a number of people、uh, on the same location and the same exact timing 
you need to do that to do a one matching transaction. Well, that's hard. So people thought if it just wasn't all digital and all virtual, it wouldn't work. <laughs> just the the growth, you know, will not be fast enough to convince the VCs and and to be called like the hot startup. Well, actually, you know, the first time we met, I think was、uh, two and a half years ago when you were pitching this idea at、um, the EMI Awards or something.、Well, that's right. It's obviously you've grown it over the last two years, and you've got. Tens of thousands of users now, right? Yeah, I have about fifteen hundred teachers、okay. and fifty thousand people、uh, viewing the sites on a week, a monthly basis. Does it attract a particular type of user? Is it, is it, for example, cooking classes are particularly popular, or language lessons? It actually depends on how you define popular. Okay. The most number of classes in a single category. I have a lot of yoga courses. Interesting. Yoga classes are keen for like it's real face to face and it's it's a group activity. It's not something you can learn on. Well, it's not fun to learn online. Right. And if you're a teacher, you want to attract not just one person but a few people. So, so are, is it mostly、um, existing yoga studios using Street Academy as an advertising platform, or are these just individuals who? Love yoga and want to teach it to other people. I、uh, started out originally with purely C to C, consumer to consumer. So Street Academy could only be participated by individuals. Right. But now I'm opening up to sort of enterprises and organizations. So I, I do welcome yoga studios now. But that、And、does make sense. It's a natural progression as as platform becomes more and more popular. The established businesses are definitely going to notice. Better to be a part of it than fighting with it, right?、Oh. <laughs> and going back to your question,、um, hmm. if you define the popular class as in what's the class that attracted the most number of students, it's something to, totally、uh, off the mark from yoga. It's actually Excel. Excel. Yeah. Just learning the basics of Excel. No, actually, in fact, you can learn how to create a business plan using Excel. An entire business plan with PL, BS, and cash flow, financial statements, all in one from scratch. Even if you didn't go to business school. Now this is interesting because you were saying before that the real challenge and the unique point was sort of the hands-on, face-to-face interaction.、Mm-hmm. But something like Excel, it seems like you could learn remotely. You could learn what you just described. Yeah. In other words, how to learn where the key is located right, and right. how to learn where the shortcut keys are,、uh, how to create charts. You can learn those online. But if you know that, can you create a business plan? That's the next question. You can't, right? Okay. So the the the, the face to face back and forth is not so much the mechanics of Excel, but how to how to formalize a a whole business plan and and this teacher actually coaches you on how to format it right. He's teaching you how to speak the right financial language and not just how to use Excel. All right. Is your user base mostly? Skews towards the younger generation, which probably does because of the medium. But it seems like something like Street Academy would be a wonderful tool for teaching kind of traditional Japanese crafts, which are always taught in very small groups.、Mm-hmm. Ha- have you seen much uptake in, in that use? It's an interesting dynamics right now because you're right. There's, there's the platform or the device issue and the cultural issue. The most traffic earning or active classes are still techie, business skills, 
web-related. These people actually hold smartphones and they, can, they don't mind booking online with a credit card. Right, right. But I'm seeing a, a growing trends in the traditional courses. Hmm. But they are lagging classes that I just described more because culturally people are not used to booking like flower arrangement lessons using smartphones. They are used to subscribing to free papers that are handed down on the streets or the circulations right. from your local municipals. Those are the places that people actually uh, intuitively seek their local activities. Well, I guess this makes sense. If it's a, a traditional craft, they're going through traditional means of finding it, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll see that changing. Yes. How have you been marketing this? Has it been mostly online? Has it been mostly word of mouth? We're experimenting with two channels. One is social. We have high affinity or synergy with Facebook mm-hmm. because I have a rare platform that lets you meet uh, completely real face-to-face. So I don't condone uh, aliases or fake names because you, right. you meet, right? Yeah. Uh, and some, uh, for example, female users are very cautious on meeting uh, if the meetup ended up in one-on-one at someone's house. So Facebook acts as uh, real authentication uh, means. Hmm. And that makes sense. On the other hand, uh, and also the, the other thing about Facebook is the, the, the geography. So your Facebook friends tend to live in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And someone who lives in Kyushu, their friends tend to be in Kyushu. So my service is very local in nature. Have you seen uptake all over Japan, or has it been localized in a few cities where it's really taken off? Uh, That's true. It's not like I'm limited by the power of my PRs, but you're right. So I'm still 70% Tokyo, and in addition, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Osaka, Yokohama, you know, the cities that have large population and, and a big downtown. Yeah, no, no big surprises there. That's where that you would expect That tends to be the, the smartphone. Uh, yeah, early, earlier adopting early technology, yeah. a population that skews a little younger yeah. for Japan. The other channel that we're getting growth is SEO or the organic search results from Google. Okay. People used to not go into Google for local needs. So in other words, people would search what they can buy online but they wouldn't search about, okay, what's the next uh, handmade workshop I can attend the next Saturday right, right. in Google. But that's changing. Uh, you know, they just changed, Google just changed their logic to prioritize uh, localness in the search. So it used to be that if you uh, c- created a query like yoga lesson, and if you lived in Okayama. Right, it would filter it out. Yes. But now it's boosting it up. Yes. Yeah. So we're setting up our architecture to emphasize the local areas and the, the learning categories. So in no time, we'll be uh, very high in the Google ranking. Okay. Yeah. I'll be watching for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you seem like a very unlikely person to be leading the charge for C2C learning mm-hmm. uh, or alternative learning. Because you've got a, a master's in engineering, you've got uh, an MBA on top of that from Cornell and Stanford, That's was right. it? Excellent. Your career before this was mostly uh, banking and, and finance, so you're in a very traditional, very cre- well-credentialed path. Why on earth did you suddenly change like almost 180 degrees 
and say, no, no, the key is alternative learning. The, the key is consumer-to-consumer learning. Uh, that's an interesting description, and I get comments like that quite often. Yeah. But in fact, if you get to know me, uh, that's only a small portion of who I am. You didn't know that before I went to Stanford, I was in a film school. All right. You didn't know I was I in not. a cooking school. People don't know. So, so was what this I, more what coming I put on my back resume, to your roots? Kind of. Well, I never really lost that track. I was always interested in many different things. So I, I went to cooking school and film school while I was working. And my first job was out of college was Universal Studios. So mm-hmm. very interested in engineering, entertainment, and experience. So personally, to me, it, it comes quite natural. Uh, I'm an avid learner. Uh, I'm always taking up new things. But people always kind of judge me in the, the most recent five years. Well, it's not so much. I don't mean it so much in terms of like a judgment. But it is, um, I mean, just from like a personal, you were on a very successful track. You were doing well. There had to be some point where you just I kind see. of said, I'm not doing this anymore. I see. I see. What, what was it that made you say, no, nah, this isn't for me? Yeah. Well, so it, it wasn't quite like that. Okay. Okay. Um, when I went to Stanford, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know entrepreneurship was a career option. I thought it was something that people not like me would do. Okay. I was an engineer in an operating company called FedEx. I just wanted to get out of that mold and see a different world. So I went to an MBA program. I happened to go to Stanford where a visiting scholar was Eric Schmidt from Google, where if I walk out and go to uh, a supermarket, I see Steve Jobs, literally. I'm not lying. <laughs> and I, I happened to be sitting in a graduation ceremony when Steve Jobs gave that very famous speech. Oh, really? All right. So you can call it serendipity, but I was kind of, I stepped into this world where suddenly everybody assumes you should pursue entrepreneurship. It's quite natural. If you receive that much education, you know, people prove you're smart, people prove you're hardworking. So stop proving to yourself and just go out and do create something new. So uh, I received that message in awe, but I had a, a debt. Student loan. Just got married. Okay. And I never imagined I would pursue entrepreneurship before I went to Stanford. I just went for a, a high-paying job that would stimulate me and that would pay back my debt. But somehow that seed was like growing inside you. Exactly. That seed kept banging, knocking on my head. And the moment that clicked was when Steve Jobs passed away. And I saw all the news and uh, commentaries. And then I realized that, you know, he's done so much that instead of thinking, oh, how sad he could have done more. So then I thought, hmm, you know what, what he said in this message. And he really lived up to what he wanted to do. And yet he, he still, at the last day, he felt short of... Uh, what he wanted to do because he wanted to do so more, yeah. so much more. Yeah, I think we, we there was there was a lot more left in him. Exactly. Well, I was at the time, you know, I had a kid. I was embarking on an even a higher ladder in a corporate uh, world. It's not like I I I hated it. I loved the people I worked with, but I felt like I wasn't ma- leaving that mark. In you society. weren't having the impact. You weren't. Yes, yeah. I was craving for an impact. I wanted to do something for people at large. I wanted to do something for a lot of people. But I felt like when I was crunching the numbers, buying out large companies, 
uh, oh, I was I making big it's... money, but, you know, and I was reaching this age, 35. Yeah. Well, I can certainly understand. I mean, it's one of the biggest rewards of doing your own thing is being able to point to something and say, I built that. I, I totally understand that point of inspiration. But what did your family and your, your wife think of that? Because that's often, especially in Japan, being inspired yourself is one thing, convincing your, your wife and your family and your wife's family that's that right. it's a good idea is quite another. How, did, right. how did you do that? So she didn't, <laughs> first of all, she didn't agree to it first, at first, right? That's understandable. Yes. And what I did was I made a, a commitment it says, give me one year. Within one year, I will have a service launched. I will have a team in place. I will have outside financing so that I would not be paying all the expenses out of my own family's asset. Right. That was my commitment. If I couldn't do it, all three conditions be met in one year, I would go back to the corporate world. Sounds like negotiating with your wife prepared you pretty well for negotiating with the VCs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they ask the same kind of questions. That's right. <laughs> Does she use it too? Uh, now she has a class uh, up and advertised, but she hasn't actually uh, held uh, an event yet because my, my son is still in kindergarten, but now he's, he's going to elementary school in this coming April, so she's going to have more time, and she probably will. That's awesome. I've just found one of the things, uh, of all the companies I've started, having family or support from very close friends is just absolutely essential to keeping it keeping it going. Yes, I agree. Well, let me ask you this. So you, you were inspired by Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. You were dreaming of starting your, your company while working through, while paying off your debts in the finance industry. But what was your biggest surprise? Everyone's got an image of, of entrepreneurship in their heads. Mm -hmm. And when you actually do it, it's quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. So what was your biggest surprise from your, your image and the reality of running a company? You know, I, a lot of the things I, I was actually pre-reading and learning before I dived into it. So I went into it expecting it to be hard and my skill sets wouldn't immediately uh, come to use. But I didn't understand how far I lagged behind. You know, I would see people just coming out of nowhere and just creating a company, just launching it immediately, blitz right through me. So the speed at which things happened? Speed was, yeah, definitely something I underestimated. How'd you respond to that? Just, just you got faster? Persistence. Persistence? <laughs> so I had to fight with sort of peer pressure. Uh, everywhere I went, it was all, oh, Stanford. And what are you doing all by yourself? Uh, you're not doing something on finance? Welcome to the internet world. You don't uh -huh. know anything. So <laughs> how are you going to do it? You know, people view me like, what are you going to do? And maybe people weren't. Maybe I was just thinking that they were. Maybe I was just thinking, I was assuming, I was fighting with my own, the, the image that I assumed people would view me. But I received all those comments often. So persistence and patience uh, for me to kind of get things moving and rolling. And I was, before I became able to attract talent and became able to uh, grow things, uh, Took me a while to accept the fact that I was all alone and powerless. So, <laughs> but no, when you talk about persistence, which I think is one of the most important thing for any entrepreneur to have. Do you, do you mean in terms of getting capital or getting people to to buy into your vision, or the persistence and kind of execution that you were talking about before, where you're dealing with a lot of uh, physical analog people who have to come together, and that just takes more time than 
throwing up a couple of, of Google banners. So what, what was the real, the most important aspect of the persistence? No, you, 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 have, you nailed it. Oh, okay. All of the above. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All of the above. All right. Yes. Uh, it was hard to attract people. It's hard to convince people to buy into the vision. It was hard to gain capital. It was hard to gain users. So <laughs> all of the above. But it's clearly not all difficult. You guys are doing pretty well these days. So you, well, after you've turned a few it around. Years, after a few years. Yeah? Yeah. It is, it is interesting. I think this is, starting is always the fun part. It's dreams and there's nothing you have to execute on yet. Everyone is really supportive. You know, they're, they're cheering you for starting something new. And then you have to execute. What was it, you know, what kind of kept you going through that? First year, I was all alone. Uh, I made those three commitments to my wife. I was able to do the first one. I launched a service on my own with just a few volunteers. I learned how to program from scratch. So I gave a pat on my back and said, whew, you know, I did it. But that was the only thing I did successfully. I couldn't build a team for the sake of anything. And I couldn't build a team so I couldn't get financing because everywhere I went, people were like, well, you yourself is very smart, but you know, you, you need to build a team. You need to build uh, a team. You need to be able to attract people, to attract users. If you can't show you can do that, you know, we won't, you know, invest in you. So it was chicken and egg. I needed a financing to pay for uh, the employees, but I needed a team. And mm -hmm. I, I struggled for about 10 months. So that four months after I launched the service and I was completely by myself. But so you launched just on your own, you were studying, studying programming enough to build the product. That's right. Just by yourself. Just by myself. That's doing it the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, every day I asked this question. Maybe I wasted a Stanford MBA and I learned how to program to be able to create a website. Well, that's great, but it's not a business. It's not a team. It's not an enterprise. It's not a startup. So should I quit here? and say, hey, I at least learned how to create a website and that's good enough, I tried. Or should I keep going and maybe somebody will appear and maybe somebody will invest. And that whole four months until I met my CTO, uh, right now my partner, right. was, I mean, I, I didn't know if I could keep going. I really wow. didn't know. Well, it's like every day, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe something will happen tomorrow. Sure. You know? uh, I really wanted to see what, what it would, be like to have a lot of users teaching so many different things uh, to build a community. Some people call it insanity. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're talking about education and, and training and acquiring skills today, well, let's say if you, if you could go back five years and there was a site like Street Academy, what, what would be the, the skills you'd want to learn to make your life a whole lot easier in, in starting this company? I certainly, if there was a course on entrepreneurship, yeah. team building, you know, getting financing or doing lean startup, guerrilla marketing, like PR without a budget. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, these are all skills every entrepreneur sort of struggled and endeavored to acquire. So it really, it sounds like there was no, I mean, other than the team building you mentioned, there was no one sticking point. It was just a series of challenges you had to kind of figure out how to solve. That's right. And once you solved, once you solved your biggest problem, problem number two got promoted. That's true. <laughs> That's the right way to say it. Okay. I get it. Um, let's talk about Japan. Education, big topics. Right now, 
Street Academy is, it seems to be focused on skills people learn for, for, for hobbies or for self-improvement. Mm -hmm. Education in Japan, as a broad picture, is, it's kind of broken. I'll explain for our overseas listeners. Education in Japan is extremely hierarchical. It's based on ranks, it's based on credentials, and that's true not only from what degree you earn from a good university, but what rank you have in what school of flower arranging or calligraphy. So much education in Japan is locked up in these ranking systems, in these organizations. Do you see either Street Academy specifically or EdTech in general being able to change that in Japan? Uh, yes, you're right. I think education is right now about getting authentication or recognition or stamp of approval. Right. So people go for the stamp and not for the content. Learning is usually, it should be for yourself. Your, your self-improvement should be the goal. But people get, get that certificate uh, or the graduation uh, diploma. Right, right. So that they can get a job. And certain, some jobs, they almost require certain degree from certain universities, specifically, you know. Exactly, yes. The bigger difference is that EdTech in general, like Street Academy, your, your customers are interested in acquiring skill. That's right. Most education in Japan is not about acquiring skill. It's about acquiring the piece of paper. That's right. Have there been any changes you've seen in the last couple of years that, that lead you to think that that might be changing in the future? Definitely. First of all, it's interesting, the word education is for what you just described, but the word learning is for people who are self-learners, who, right. who want to learn for the content of the skills. And education is a defensive tool. You get educated so you get recognized, and you get authenticated so you can get a job or do, do something mm -hmm. for, uh, for somebody else before they get to know you in person or as a working colleague. So it's like screening out the door knockers who are not good enough or something like that. Right, right. It's a it, shortcut. Right. Learning is something you do because you love it. You're interested in it. And what we've seen is the learners excel much faster than the educated people. Because uh, yeah. your passion, your desire drives you to be higher so you excel better. So what I'm trying to do is grow a population, people who, are, who love what they're doing who love what they do at work. Uh, and whatever they do, if you increase the, the portion of people who love what they do, society at large, just productivity at large, will improve. So, so do. Do, you th do you see traditional education and modern ed tech learning as sort of parallel and complementary? Yeah, you can't change what's being, what's being done historically. So mm -hmm. You can't change the value chain. You can't change the industry protocols. So you can't suddenly ask Toyotas to stop recruiting from Tokyo University because right. they've been doing it over the years. However, you can show examples of people who have, who didn't graduate from college, but just use the social network or web to pick up interesting skills and just rise out of the ashes and become a star. Well, Peter Thiel is one of the most outspoken advocates of don't go to college, save your money, learn skills, network, be valuable. 
Well, certainly some people in America have done that to some success. Do you think that model would work in Japan as well? I think they should coexist. Okay, I don't think one should replace the other. You、okay. need some orders and structures in place for the society to be peaceful and you know at order、uh-huh. to make everybody at ease, right? So you don't want to say college education is completely not necessary at all. I think yeah, I mean I, I interview people you know、uh, every day, and of course college graduates are. are On average, better than non-college graduates. So,、hmm. uh, you know, there is a need. But so it's a shortcut, but it's a useful shortcut. You need a balance of people who talented and people who should be educated to、right. serve certain needs. Like, if you have a completely capitalistic society where you only value people who with their passion, who wants to be a, a guardian or safeguard? No one, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, there are jobs for people who needs to be trained and educated, and and、uh, there are jobs that you know your passion excels you to be to above everybody else. But it's not like that for all the jobs and all the roles. Well,、so. that's true. I mean, somebody has to keep society running smoothly, right?、Mm-hmm. On a personal note, have you hired or would you hire someone who had no college experience but good skills for say programming or sales? So that's very interesting.、Uh, yes, most definitely yes, because I'm in the internet industry,、yeah. where your passion can be traced back to a track record. So、uh, I ask for a GitHub account, and I, if I see a great product,、mm-hmm. uh, I don't need to ask for any educational history. That's it. Done. He's hired. Right. But if you go to other industries, you, you can't say, "Hey, you know, some guy walks in and say, 'I've I've been doing it for years personally.'" Would you believe that? No, right. So I think it depends on which industry. Well, I guess that does make、uh, sense because if if you're looking at programmers, particularly those who have worked on open source projects, it's very easy to validate the quality. That's right. It, there's no need for a third party validation like a university.、Mm-hmm. Whereas for a CPA, you definitely want that third party validating,、That's、saying、right. this person, you can trust him to do your taxes. That's right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good way of framing it. So that's why I say there there needs to be a balance. So I'm shooting you right for that portion of openly visible categories. So、uh, technology related skills is one area like that,、mm-hmm. uh, and also self learning or self improvement areas,、uh, cultural areas. So, so it would seem、yeah. like probably the parts in Japan that would be the most affected by technology, like Street Academy, would be things like flower arranging, cooking, where there there are. Very powerful organizations that provide certification, but those kind of things would also be independently verifiable. That's right. Like so, uh, uh, Japanese tea. Yeah, there's a perfect example. There's all these schools, and you need to decide before you can start learning on which school of tea school you want to follow. But you need to commit yourself, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs>、uh, in this day and age, that's a hurdle for a lot of young people. Who don't know that much about tea ceremony, and they just want to check it out, like like a, a guy, you know, foreigner would do. Right. They they don't want to make a four year commitment. To, they don't. Yeah. And who can blame them? Right. And interestingly, tea ceremony parties would do it for foreigners because they want the outsiders to know the Japanese culture. But、right. if you're Japanese, they wouldn't let you do this just one hour lesson. You know, they they ask you to commit. Right. Right. But so I I ask my users in Street Academy to hey, you know, forget that. You know, do just table manner tea ceremony.、Uh-huh. Do jeans based 
tea ceremony. You don't wear, have to wear kimonos. You don't have to be in a shrine. And people love that. I bet they do. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time in both the U.S. and Japan. If I gave you a, a, a magic wand and I said, you can, ch you can change one thing about Japan to make it better for startups, whether it's people's attitudes, whether it's the educational system, whether it's uh, venture capital, anything at all, what would you change to make things better for startups here? Conservatism in general, especially in the sort of users or consumer attitude. I would say if you're within the entrepreneurship or startup community, it's, there's no difference. You, mm. you see venture capitalists, web engineers, they're open, just as open as they are in Silicon Valley. It's a very free, open community. Yeah, people try new products pretty quickly yes. in that group. In that group. Once you step outside of that group, I'm always told, hey, uh, you need to tie up with big corporates. Yeah, Why? that's traditionally Why? the way Because done. you just need to PR that you're okay. You're in that <laughs> mass. You're welcomed into that zone of admitted by the large masses, you know. I guess that's the same idea, though, as, as a university giving you a stamp of approval. It's a big company saying, this little company has our stamp of approval now. It's Why, that, that third-party exactly. validation. Why would they do it? Because the consumers always go for the, the biggest brands. But if you, if you look at one same idea that springs up in Silicon Valley in New York and compare that to uh, what's sprung out in, in Japan, the magnitude of early adopters is about 10 to 1. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Or maybe 100 to 1. It's an interesting phenomenon right now. You see all the Series B or above funded uh, startups. They use that first money to do a TV commercial campaign. You see that? Oh, yeah. A lot. That's, get that's some, a trend for the, these past two years. They'll get a Japanese idol to use something or hold something. That's because you need, you need that. It's not just advertised spending. It's, it's, it's a ticket for the consumer to say, oh, this company appeared on a TV, evening TV slot. That means he's <laughs> or it's okay. <laughs> Again, a third party has said, these guys are okay, so it's okay for me to try it now. Right. Yeah, that would be fantastic if, if Japanese would be more, trust their own judgment on what they like and what they don't like. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, listen, this has been really great. I have no idea how I'm going to edit this down to a... <laughs> 30-minute interview. But before we wrap up, do you have anything you want to say to our listeners or any advice you have for new entrepreneurs? Or Right now, the, the hurdle in entrepreneurship is lower than ever. Mm. And the cost uh, is so low. You can almost start anything for free. Uh, you can get free AWS server coupon somewhere. You right. can get free rent space at some office somewhere. Everybody's offering free space for entrepreneurs. Right? And even like you, you can learn to do, you can learn to program for free on the internet these days. Exactly. No excuse. So it literally just do it. And I have to say this so many times and a lot of, I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs now and a lot of them come up to me and show, show me their plan. Yeah. And I say, I don't need a plan. You don't need a plan. Just go out and do it. But even before they do their beta or alpha or pre-alpha launch, they need to structure their thoughts and create a plan to ramp up. Plan. No need to do a ramp up <laughs> schedule. Just, just go and acquire uh, two users or something, you know, and get their feedback. People have their mind blocked. I, I, I need to uh, have a logo or I need to... 
I need to have a team in place before I I can go. So take small steps, but take steps. Take Get steps. customers. I went out sell there. Sell something. I went out there with a handmade website, handmade by a Stanford MBA, thirty-five-year-old with a wife and kid, and uh, many people look at me like I'm fool, but. <laughs> I made that first step, and I asked my friends to use the service, and they didn't. And I asked why, and that's the beginning. That's、yeah. the start. That's fantastic. That's great advice to end on. Listen, Takashi, thank you so much for sitting down with me. No problem. I really appreciate it. And we're back. Takeshi's vision of ed tech and P2P learning, and traditional institutional education as complementary, is an interesting one. And in fact. I'd say it's representative of a lot of the way Japanese startup founders view disruption. Disruption is not valued for its own sake. Disruption only has value when it is necessary to significantly improve the way things are now. It will be interesting to watch how the effects of ed tech play out around the world. There's no shortage of innovative ideas, and there's no doubt that these ideas will be steadfastly resisted. For both very good and very bad reasons, by mainstream educational institutions. If you want to see the links and resources that Takashi and I talked about, or to get in touch with him on social media, go to disruptingjapan.com/show015, and you'll find links to all of that and more in the resources section. Leave a comment and let us know what you think about ed tech or learning, online or off, in Japan or elsewhere. And if you get a chance, please leave us a review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can help support the show and help us get the word out. But most of all, thanks for listening, and thanks for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. This is Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.